Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, I'm delighted to say that my guest is Philip Jenkins. Philip is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. He's no stranger to this program. He's been on it quite recently, speaking about his last book published by Oxford University Press earlier this year, a book in Psalm 91. But today, we're talking to Philip about his new book, A Storm of Images, Iconoclasm and Religious Reformation in the Byzantine World, a fine book on a complicated episode in Christian history just published by Baylor University Press. Philip, congratulations on the book. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. Um, We've spoken to you before, obviously, uh, on the programme, but for anyone who hasn't heard that episode, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Boy, um, I was educated many centuries ago at uh, Cambridge University. I moved to the United States, and I've taught at Baylor since uh, 2012. I work on a lot of different uh, topics. Probably my best-known books are on global or world Christianity, uh, but I have a, a lot of interest in the Christian tradition, more broadly defined as it uh, has developed, and uh, not just in uh, Western Europe, so I always try to get a more um, global focus, and particularly with the uh, Eastern churches. And those themes really come out in this book, don't they? That This is a book about a complicated period uh, in the medieval uh, centuries, but one in which lots of these traditions come together in very curious and complex ways. Before we talk about the book itself, Philip, can we talk about sources and method? This is One of the reasons this is a marvellous book is because... It thinks carefully and deliberately and out loud, which is good for readers, about how to approach uh, an historical problem which has few sources, many of them contradictory. So how did you do it? All right. Uh, So by way of background, for about um, 140 years, the uh, Eastern churches are deeply, passionately, violently divided over the issue of icons and images. Uh, At different times, different sides came to power. And when each one came to power, it tried to wipe out all the writings of its enemies. And that included the writings even of like Roman emperors and great church uh, councils. Um, By the time you've gone through that cycle uh, a few times, uh, you've removed a great many of the contemporary sources. And over time, people do what they do, and they make up for that gap by means of basically uh, inventing myths and stories that uh, should have happened. And so much of the writing about uh, iconoclasm in recent times has consisted of trying to get past this in a number of ways. One is to say that even the sources we have are late or made up or hopelessly biased. So then what you have to do is to try and uh, decide what what really is uh, worthwhile. And at that point, you have to use a sort of Occam's razor approach. You have to choose the uh, least impossible 
uh, interpretation. And also, when, when you look a bit further afield at other societies that were around at the time, you will get some confirmation of uh, particular things. So uh, it's a very delicate path to walk, but with a little bit of uh, care, a little bit of uh, knowledge of what's happening in the wider world, um, you, you really can get there. You really can come up with what I believe to be a, um, a plausible story of what happened. Although there, there are certainly major, major incidents where genuinely I don't know. I can say I'm about eighty-five percent certain, uh, but but no more than uh, uh, than that. But you know, for a historian, that, that's really part of the fun and part of the interest. Uh, just trying to make these decisions. Absolutely. Now, you've given us a nice synopsis of the content of the book there, but can we shift a little bit to the title, a Storm of Images? iconoclasm and religious reformation in the byzantine world and just for the sake of any listeners who aren't quite sure what some of those key terms mean could you give us your working definition of iconoclasm and the byzantine world okay uh if you look at many books on church history they have this thing called icon byzantine uh iconoclasm and the standard history goes like this, that in the Byzantine Empire, around about the 8th and 9th centuries, there is a great movement that arises when uh, these enthusiastic reformers uh, believe that you should not have visual depictions of Christ or Mary or holy figures, and they go and break these images. And the word for image in Greek is uh, icon. So it does not just mean an icon in the sense of an Orthodox church icon. It means um, paintings on walls. It means sculptures. It means textiles. It means woodwork. And you could uh, think of it in terms of breaking them or maybe putting them in the attic, but just putting them in a place where people will not succumb to the temptation to um, uh, worship them or venerate them. Now, um, and uh, iconoclasm literally means breaking images. Now, I, there are a couple of things that I'm trying to uh, emphasize there. One is that it's th- 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 there is a kind of mythology in that story. It suggests that the images are there and these bad people come in and break them up. What other people would say, looking at the sources, is that uh, the images have arrived fairly recently they've only recently developed this importance and it's traditional conservative people who are saying now, hold on, we don't need another miraculous image of the Virgin Mary. Uh, People are going to be very idolatrous to that. Let's take that uh, out. The other word I'm trying to be careful of is Byzantine. Byzantine uh, as a word means something that is, um, almost like a finicky, obsessive, oh, I, I had to deal with this bureaucracy and their rules are Byzantine. Well, what the Byzantine Empire is, is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire carries on in the East. Its great capital is Constantinople. Um, and it's only later that people call it the Byzantine Empire. So just as the great church councils happen in the Roman Empire, So the story I'm telling about is about a great debate among Christians based not in old Rome, but in new Rome or Constantinople. But as I said, we have this label for convenience of uh, the Byzantine Empire. So what I'm talking about 
is a furious debate over images and the proper way of depicting the holy that happened in the 8th and 9th centuries in the Roman Empire. Now, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was your making this Christian story part of a much larger religious narrative that doesn't just involve Orthodox Christians, if we can use small Orthodox or big Orthodox in this period, but it's a, it's a story that involves Muslims, Jews, and members of many smaller, marginal religious communities as well. What, what is really going on in this really complex mix of religious dynamics? Right. Well, th- think of the chronology. Um, the uh, Muslims expand out of Arabia in the 7th century. They take over many territories that are Christian and, uh, and Jewish. And in what we would call the Near East, in Syria, in Palestine, in Iraq, there are uh, communities that are made up of those three religions. And the Muslims are pretty tolerant in the sense that they don't care if Christians and Jews uh, shout at each other in debates over images, and they're not going to come down very hard on one side uh, uh, or the other. So there is a period of a couple of hundred years where the three religions are debating furiously over these age-old questions of when can you depict the holy. If you have a statue of the Virgin Mary, is that an idolatrous image that should be smashed, or is it something that just um, pays uh, respect? And there's about a century of debate between Christians and Jews, uh, particularly, and as the two fight and argue, so they develop more and more extreme positions. Uh, So Jews come to be much sterner on um, forbidding images than they had been, and Christians come to be more enthusiastic about supporting them. And we think, well, you know, Jews have never uh, supported uh, images in their places of worship. If you go into a synagogue in the Middle East from the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries, it is laden with images, including the sun god, and figures of the zodiac not to be worshipped, but just because that's nice decoration. Over time, Jews and Christians and Muslims become much more uh, polarized on these issues. Over time, too, Muslims go through these different reform movements, and they think, well, we, um, we absolutely have to do away with these uh, idols, or God will be angry. All the religions believe that when there's a great disaster, when there's a a volcano, an earthquake, a plague, God is angry and we have to figure out what he's angry about. And what a lot of them decide is God is angry because we have all these images. So at different times, Muslim rulers put out these edicts saying you have to take away all these religious images, get rid of them from your churches. You can carry on worshipping, but no more images. That then puts Christians in a bind because they don't want Muslims to be holier and more pious than them. So they, in a sense, strike back and they say, well, in that case, we'll do away with our own uh, images. So you have this three-way war going on, which is also complicated because you have all these little small Christian heretical movements around who have their own views on the uh, uh, on the issue and who are quite strong in the Roman or Byzantine uh, Empire. And we, we can talk uh, about that, but the, the point it makes is all the three religions are much more diverse and complex 
than we think. It's not just a case of, uh, so Christians like images and icons and statues and Muslims and Jews don't. There are degrees of opinion at different times and people are more active and militant at different times, depending on what the climate's like, whether there's a volcano, whether there's a plague, and how people try in their different ways to appeal for God's favour. And of course, in the book, one of the things you emphasise, Philip, is that this was a period of rapid environmental change. There were volcanoes that were seriously affecting weather patterns, um, icebergs floating past uh, major cities uh, in, in, in the Byzantine Empire and so on. There's also a plague, the plague of Justinian. There's lots of evidence, isn't there, that God is unhappy. But as well as this being, uh, as well as this conflict being a response to providential events, it's also a deeply theological contest among Christians, isn't it? Because the question of images is ultimately being linked to theologizing about the person of Christ. Right. Um so many people who study Christian history, they know about the great church councils in the 4th, 5th centuries. You have the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon. And those councils debate issues like the Trinity and then deciding exactly who Christ is. Um, is he holy God? Is he holy man? Is he some kind of mix of the two? And they come up with a pretty good statement uh, of this. Unfortunately, um, they they don't win everybody's support. And so for centuries afterwards, you have these different uh, rows and feuds going on. When people start talking about images, they hark back to these uh, issues, going back to comes of Chalcedon. And so if I'm an iconoclast, I might say something like, well, you put up an image of Christ. What exactly have you done? If you believe you are representing the whole of Christ in that image, then you've committed a dreadful Christological heresy. You're portraying the divine and the human in one. Uh, if you believe it's uh, wholly a divine image, then you're leaving out the material and the human. But either way, you can't do that. You, The only legitimate representation of Christ is in the Eucharist, and you can't do that if you can decorate a church with a cross, but not a crucifix, because that would involve having a figure of Jesus on it. And that very soon extends from talking about Christ to other holy figures. And if you walk into an iconoclast church, a church as would have been under the iconoclast rulers for a century or so, what you would have seen is... Um, a, a, a dome, no statues, no figures, no paintings, no mosaics, but just a plain cross. In fact, it looks very much like uh, the kind of church that you might get during the European Enlightenment, something like uh, St. Paul's in um, in London. But uh, this is not just an aesthetic thing, as you say, it is very theological and Christological. How do you depict Christ? Now, there's some beautiful images, I should say, at the very back of the book that, that illustrate some of these places, uh, as well as some of the practices that, that you've just been describing there. So there's this long and complex interaction between the three globalizing religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They're thinking about um, images and their relation to the holy in different kinds of ways. Christians are theologizing this debate in a way that highlights tensions within that tradition in particular. How does this 
episode really begin? What kicks it off? What's the ignition point? Well, as far as we can uh, tell, round about the year 717, 718, uh, there is a, you can almost call it an apocalyptic war between Christians and Muslims. Uh, Constantinople uh, almost falls to the uh, Muslims. And um, about the same time, there is a a catastrophic uh, volcano uh, uh, on the island of uh, of Thera. There are earthquake, plague, and so on and so on. Um, At this point, probably the Muslim caliph issues a law uh, suppressing images. And the Byzantine emperor, who up to that point is pretty easygoing on images, says, well, I'm I'm not going to be outflanked. I'm not going to let this um, Muslim uh, go ahead of me to the divine court uh, and say, God, look what I'm doing. So he supposedly then suppresses uh, images in the uh, in the Roman Empire. Now, at every point here, you notice I'm using words like supposedly and probably, as far as we know, there's a lot of debate uh, uh, about exactly what happens when. But almost certainly during the 720s, the Roman Emperor, a man called Leo III, does adopt a much harsher policy against images. And that sets off a war between pro and anti-image uh, factions. Um, And he begins a policy which continues in the Roman Empire until the first comeback of images in the year 787. So it's basically um, about 60 or 70 uh, years. But as you say, it's a direct response to uh, climate issues and signs of God's anger. Now, the the dispute is a dispute between Christians also, that also takes place within families, doesn't it? And there's factionalization, and you use the line somewhere in the book to describe a theater of cruelty, as Christians persecuted Christians for the for the positions they took on these issues. And um, how forcefully were individuals holding the positions that they maintained? There are a great many people on either side who are prepared to um, accept martyrdom. Uh, we hear, for example, uh, there, there is a particularly severe, notorious uh, iconoclast supporter uh, whose name is Michael, and uh, he's popularly known as Michael the Dragon, which gives an idea of what a saintly retiring figure he was. And in the lands he ruled in the empire, he wanted to stamp out the monks and the nuns who um, were the great supporters of images. And he would gather all the monks and nuns in his territory and give them a simple choice, which is uh, either you give up your monastic order, either you give up support of images, or you will be blinded immediately. And we know that some people um, give up their principles and some people uh, accept losing their eyes uh, and in many cases, um, their um, their lives. Uh, the Byzantines are very good at um, killing people in large numbers when they oppose the uh, uh, the emperor. They also do something, by the way, which is very strange to uh, uh, in our minds, which is they believe it's wrong to kill somebody for too light a reason. So what they do is they move towards blinding and mutilating people as a means of punishment. 
uh, and that's much more humane because somebody can then live live out their natural life. And so we read the most horrendous pictures of people being blinded and mutilated and lamed, which they're doing um, in a way of uh, uh, defending and asserting their uh, principles. There are also whole wars and revolts. Um, people literally are dying in substantial numbers over these uh, issues, which to us, of course, look like a matter of theological opinion. And these conflicts impact the royal family itself, don't they? One member attacks another. Uh, very often, and it's not just the uh, uh, the royal uh, family. There are these dynasties who last for uh, maybe a, a few generations, and people will fight among that. Um, but uh, the dynasties come to uh, uh, come to an end. Um, uh, you, you'll get a series of emperors who will be generals who mount a coup d'état, and they'll be in power for two years, and overthrown by another general for three years. Uh, so it's an absolutely uh, chaotic time uh, with some really um, theatrical uh, moments of, you know, sudden murders and plots and conspiracies. And at times you don't know whether you're reading a sober history uh, or a 19th century grand opera uh, or a bit of uh, or a bit of gothic uh, fiction with um, and with a very theatrical um, mindset also. Don't forget, uh, this is the, these people are Greek by culture. Greece is the uh, home of drama. And some of the things that people do um, to present and publicize their views are outrageously um, theatrical. Uh, you talk about theater of cruelty. One of my favorite incidents is there's a great Roman emperor who's uh, an iconoclast called Constantine V. And his supporters tried to get an iconoclast revival going by formally staging in a theatrical way Constantine's resurrection from his tomb, complete with um, sound effects and dramatic images. And the sense is, uh, you know, they will now say, Constantine is back, he will lead us in war, and uh, we can bring down the images. So it, it's a very violent time, yes, but a very uh, theatrical time. Now, how successful are the religious reformers who want to rid the churches of images? Can they ever elevate their arguments to any kind of creedal status? Uh, very much so. Um, in the year 754, there is a, a great church council at a place called Hyria, where the iconoclasts get absolutely everything they want. And as far as they're concerned, um, they have had a great church council, which is going to be remembered like Nicaea and Chalcedon. And that then lasts for about 30 years until accidents within the royal family, struggles within the imperial family result in a new um, power coming to uh, uh, coming into force under a woman called the Empress Irene. And Irene stages a revival against images and has her council, which is very symbolically called the Second Council of Nicaea. And uh, we almost, we come very, very close uh, to losing that earlier iconoclast council altogether. Uh, they, they, in fact, the only reason we know about it 
is they include the text of the earlier council um, just to make fun of it. And so they go line by line and say, oh, and at that point, these dreadful heretics then made this ridiculous statement. And we're very grateful they do, because otherwise we wouldn't uh, know it. So the iconoclasts might be up for a generation. The anti-iconoclasts might rule for another generation. And ultimately, the pro-image people, the pro-icon people win. But I would say it could very, very easily have gone another way. And that's one of the great uh, kind of might-have-beens of, um, uh, of Christian history. Hmm. So the church resolves the question ultimately in favour of the use of images, and we might chat more about what that means later on. Um, but obviously, this sequence of events impacted upon Jews, to some extent perhaps also Muslims too. And those smaller Christian communities, they're also being impacted. How, how does that work out? Well, some of the uh, Christian communities are uh, are interesting. We uh, we tend to think of all the Christian heresies as being in the early centuries. Um, and if you know anything about Christian history, you, you'll read about these, oh, Gnostics and Montanists and so on. What we tend to forget is that they don't go away. They're very much there in the 8th, ninth centuries. And they're more powerful than we uh, think for this reason. If you're a heretic, you go somewhere remote where the empire can't find you. You survive there by becoming a very tough fighter. And then um, when the, uh, the empire wants to draft people for its army, it thinks, these are wonderful. These are very tough warriors who live in the uh, mountains. They're very much like Highlanders in the, uh, uh, the British or Scottish tradition. Uh, you know, come join our army and fight for us. What that means is these heretics are disproportionately powerful in the Roman army, and some of them actually become uh, emperors. Um, and when they become emperors, they uh, bring in some of their views, which are often anti-image views, dating back to these lost uh, Christian um, heretics. Uh, wh one of the groups I, re I read about I'm always interested in there's a group called the uh, Afinganoi. They're not a well-known group, but they're very interesting. They seem to be a, uh, a movement, a sect of Jewish Christians, maybe crypto-Jews, who were around for centuries. Um, they survive by being very tough fighters who live in the mountains. The Roman army loves to hire them. And one Roman emperor is actually a, a, a member of that group, which all through its history, has hated images. So the first thing he does as emperor is becomes a very strong um, iconoclast. You know, um, what, what, one lesson I think we, we learned from this study, we tend to think of a lot of these early ancient Christian movements and debates went away conveniently in the year 400 or whatever. No, no, no. 400, 500 years later, they're still there. Um, and they're still fighting out these uh, uh, debates. The early Roman Christian world is still there in the ninth century. Uh, we, we just tend not to see it or to understand it in those terms. The idea of resonances runs through the book, doesn't it? Just in the way you've described. But, you know, as we come to the end of the book, we, we think a little bit more about iconoclasm, the dissolution of monasteries, churches stripped of anything but a bare cross, if even that. And of course, we instinctively think of the Protestant Reformation. Can we draw a simple line between the episode you describe here and Calvin, who, as you note, had his own view of the Second Council of Nicaea? 
Right. Uh, and, you know, as I was writing the book, that's a temptation that I really had to uh, fight because at many, many points, the uh, the resonances, the parallels are so strong. And when we talk about the Reformation, we often forget how much of it does consist of iconoclasm. You know when the Reformation hits uh, an area like the Netherlands, because what they do is they go to all the churches, they break the images, they take down the figures of Christ and, uh, uh, and the Virgin Mary. And there's one legendary episode that happens in the 1560s that is called The Storm of Images, where I get the title of my book. And it's a great Calvinist popular rising um, against the, those uh, uh, those images. The parallels are even stronger than that, because one of the things that the reformers do in the 8th and ninth centuries um, is they fight very hard against monks and monasteries. They will seize monastic estates. Um, they will force monks to enter the secular life. They'll force them to get married and lead regular lives. And at this point, you you, you are probably thinking, you know, um, Henry VIII would be looking back at this and thinking what a wonderful uh, set of ideas. At the same time, the parallels are very strong, but it is not a linear um, inheritance one of the biggest differences is that the Reformation of the 16th century depended on printing. It depended on circulating the Bible, making the scriptures freely available. And technologically, that's just not possible in the 8th, 9th centuries. So the parallels are there. People like Calvin know about them, and they really like the iconoclasts. Um, but it's not a one-for-one -one, uh, parallel. So I, I, I slipped the word Reformation uh, into my title, uh, but I then spend a, a, a page or two saying, well, I don't exactly mean this is a Reformation, but it looks Reformation-ish. Well, Philip, it's been wonderful talking to you today about this new book, A Storm of Images, just published by Baylor University Press. And hopefully our conversation has given listeners a sense of the complexity and, and curiosity of this episode uh, that you describe and analyse so well. Before we wind up, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? There's bound to be something, isn't there? I'm writing a book uh, right now uh, that is called Kingdoms of This World. And it's about um, empires as a driving force in making and remaking uh, the world's religions. Everyone knows about uh, the Roman Empire and Christianity, but I argue that if you want to understand um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, you have to understand that imperial dimension and the relation to what I call empire-ness. So that is my next book. That sounds wonderful. Maybe we'll have you on again to chat about it. That would be great. Well, Philip, it's been great talking to you. A Storm of Images, just published by Baylor University Press. Wonderful book, highly recommended to everyone listening. Thanks for coming on to the show and for talking about it. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>